Well, good morning to everybody here with us in person. Good morning to those who are watching online. I will say this, there is something quite unifying about one degree weather is that we are all in support of masks and uh, probably won't take ours off all day. It's a joy to be able to spend this time together, to come to God's Word, to hold it up and to hold it out and to encourage one another with it in prayer, in song, and as we come to it now together. If you have a Bible, please open your Bible to Exodus chapter 20. We continue on in our series in Exodus, Delivered to Dwell. And Exodus 20 is where we get the Ten Commandments and the start of God's structure for what it looks like to dwell with Him for His people. And as we do that, we have this picture of how serious God's holiness is. Now we are, uh, this is our third Sunday spent in Exodus 20, and now after this we're going to be hitting some big chunks together, but this chapter was one of those that we needed to slow down and take a look at. So we're going to read verses 18 to the end of the chapter and consider this transition from the Ten Commandments into what it looks like to, to live dwelling with God. Let's read, starting at verse 18. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And when the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build on it of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. Let's pray. God, we come to your word and we ask your blessing on it as we consider this passage. Help us uh, to think deeply on who you are, how awesome you are. Help us to think deeply upon your grace. God, may your grace draw near to us so that our lives would draw near to you. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Is God too awesome? too awesome. Now, I don't mean that word awesome in the sort of empty, trite, shallow way that we use the word awesome. I mean that in the sense that um, it, does God have something about him that characterizes uh, this overwhelming sense of awe in us? And is it too much? Is it too much? Hymn writer from the early 1700s named Isaac Watts wrote a hymn entitled, How Sweet and Awful is the Place. 
That's a funny little word, awful. It shows how English words change over time. It was A-W-E-F-U-L, awful, as in the same kind of way that we would say awesome. How sweet and awesome is the place. And he started off his hymn with this declaration. How sweet and awful is the place with Christ within the doors. Pretty awesome to have Jesus. It's what he starts with. But then he moves into an existential crisis as he realizes, like, if God is really this awesome, if if God in the flesh in Christ is really this awesome, then, then there's a very profound and real and personal problem that I'm experiencing right now. And he asks this question of the reality of Christ's awesomeness. Lord, why was I a guest? How sweet and awful is the place where Christ is within the doors. And then you quickly realize, wait, why am I here? <laughs> And the rest of the hymn works out this question, works through it. And it goes on to say, Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? T'was the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in, else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. There is a tension that we have been wrestling with and considering. A tension brought on by the awesomeness of God. And it's largely a tension due to the fact that you and I, we are not awesome. When we compare our level of awesome next to the awesomeness of God, there is no level And that creates a tension, one that we can say, is God too awesome? My hope as we look at the end of this chapter in light of all that we've wrestled through, my hope is that as we consider the tension of that question, is God too awesome for us, that, that it would propel us in light of what we see here, in light of how God progressively reveals more and more of His character and promises through the pages of Scripture, how it is fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and how you, many of you in here, have experienced God's profound work of grace by the power of the Spirit in your own heart, that in light of all of that, my hope is that you and I, we would draw near to the God of grace. Because guess what? God is too awesome. Very much so, yes. But God is gracious. No matter what level of regret, no matter what depth of shame and embarrassment you dragged in here on your shoulders with you this morning, No matter what struggle you may have, in light of God's awesomeness and grace, He calls to you to come near because He's already drawn near through Christ. So as we get a feel for that in the end of this chapter, my hope is that our hearts 
long to draw near all the more to the God of all grace. Now, in response to the awesomeness of God, Yahweh, He's really awesome. This whole scene that we're considering here in light of this most radical and remarkable rescue really leaves no doubt. Yes, He is overwhelmingly awesome. There are some responses that we need to see here as we work this through. Because in light of how awesome God is, it's enough for us to fear. And so what we find here is there's one response. Fear draws back. Fear draws back. Sees the question, is God too awesome? Fear draws back. Yes, He is. Yes, He is. But there's another response in light of what we see here. The first paragraph certainly describes our drawing back, or the people of God's drawing back there at that mountain. The second paragraph describes God's drawing near. It's grace that draws near. So as we consider then the awesome God, the awesome Yahweh, in responses to that, we're going to think of it in these two ways. Fear draws back, grace draws near. So let's tackle that first one together. Fear draws back. Three things that we're going to look at here. What kind of fear... What kind of fear are we looking at in this passage? Secondly, what fuels fear? At least the kind that we're going to see here in the people of God. And then thirdly, what does fear produce? What fear produces in our lives? Fear draws back. So sees God is awesome and draws back. There are literally two kinds of fear going on in our passage. There's a fear that is the paralyzing, I'm afraid kind of fear. And then we definitely see that in the people of God at the base of this mountain. They see the scene and they are paralyzed with fear. They're drawing back. And there's a second kind of fear that Moses is calling calling them to, and that is a, a reverence, worship fear. It is a giving of reverence and respect to God for who He is. And so it is a Yes, we are to see how awesome He is, and as Ruth said, His holiness and His awesomeness demands to be worshipped. He is worth all the worship. And so it is to draw us out and upward, and that's the other sort of fear that's on display. Verse 20 is a very important verse. You see both of them on display uh, for us. Moses said to the people, do not fear. Do not have that paralyzing, I'm afraid of God fear. For God has come to test you that you, that the fear of Him, the reverence and respect, the drawing out and worship may be before you, that you may not sin. Now we're going to hit this verse up a few times through this morning, so you might want to have that one um, cued on your your phone or or your tablet or just right there in your Bible. We'll come back to Exodus 20.20 again and again. But let's take a second and really take a moment to consider the scene. We have a desert mountain that's shrouded in deep darkness with smoke and clouds. There's thunder pealing and and lightning crackalacking, and there's a really loud trumpet blowing, and we have no idea where this trumpet is and who's blowing it, but it's blowing. I'm still not over that, and and I I don't want to be over that. Where did the trumpet come from and why? And Anyway, so this really loud trumpet is blowing, and everything, the mountain and the people and everything in between is shaking and trembling. Let's not forget that. That's the context. Looks like everything is collapsing into chaos as the presence of God descends down on this mountain. 
Then there's the voice of God booming forth, bringing out His law, declaring the law of God to the people of God. This booming voice that says, this is how you are to live according to me. It is a frightening scene. And if you honestly assessed your heart, and if you honestly assessed your level of holiness compared to God's, it is a terrifying scene. I'm going to move quickly through these, just hitting on three verses in our one little paragraph. The people, verse 18, were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. Verse 19, they said, do not let God speak to us lest we die. Verse 21, the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Their response to this overwhelming scene was one of fear. It it caused them to draw back, not draw near. Not draw near. This is the same God that radically and remarkably rescued them from Egypt in the most visual, stunning ways. And yet this is a God that they still want to draw back from. So what fuels that? Because the thing that was fueling that in them is the same thing that fuels it in us. What fuels that sort of fear? Well, underneath fear is a heart that's full of unbelief. Underneath fear, the, the well that's deep down is unbelief. For the people of God, there was an unmistakable realization that God, that Yahweh, is awesome, too awesome. That they saw very vividly the gulf between the holiness of Yahweh and their sinfulness. It was eternal, it was threatening, it was too far. And this realization is definitely necessary. We need to see that, feel that, know that. God is holy and we are not. But, it, but unbelief makes it an impossibility in the mind and hearts of the people. That gulf between God and the people is an eternal impossibility brought on by unbelief. And if you remember, we've tackled unbelief a number of times already, and we'll continue to because it's the underlying struggle in the people of God, and it's the underlying struggle in our hearts in here this morning. It's the underlying struggle for humanity is unbelief. That is, doubting that God can or cares. That's really what's sourcing fear, that God can or cares, that God can do anything about this enormous gulf between who He is and who we are, or God cares enough to do anything about the enormous gulf between who He is and who we are. Unbelief fuels that fear. And we know that this was something that plagued these people as they were rescued and redeemed and brought out and given this picture of what it looks like to dwell with God. They even wrote songs about it later and sang it in church about their unbelief. How crazy is that? You want your unbelief to be a song of the future church? I know I wouldn't. But here it is. It's instructive for our hearts. Psalm 78. In light of paragraph after paragraph in Psalm 78, speaking about how the people of God in this particular moment struggled with unbelief, it says this, in spite of all this, and if you look at Psalm 78, in spite of all the amazing things that God has done and drawn near to them, in spite of it all, 
they still sinned. Despite His wonders, they did not believe. Unbelief is a terrible, paralyzing, debilitating thing. Unbelief fuels fear because the problem of holiness as a result of unbelief remains unresolved and is most devastating. And the ultimate logical conclusion of unbelief then is separation from God for all eternity. Not only that, for those who believe, many of you are like that father in the New Testament who brought his son before Jesus, who convulsed and threw himself in fires that nobody could help and nobody could heal, and brought him to Jesus, and he was looking at a situation that was so overwhelming for him, and he says, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Have you ever prayed that prayer? Maybe not those exact words, but that exact sentiment. Unbelief, the the ongoing battle with it is a weariness of the soul. And many of us in here know the weariness of that battle with unbelief. The weariness of praying a thousand times, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That weariness can produce things in us. Produce things in us. That fear fueled by unbelief can show up in our lives in very struggling kinds of ways. Three A's for us to consider how this sort of unbelief-fueled fear shows up in our lives. Lives, excuse me. Anger, anxiety, and apathy. We see it, we'll, we see, we'll see them all in Exodus. You see it all in the Old Testament. You see it. You know them. You feel them. Fear produces in us anger, anxiety, and apathy. Maybe sometimes all of them all at once, maybe one of them more so than others, but that's where it shows up in our lives. With respect to anger, unbelief fuels fear, and this fear causes us to draw back in anger. We're angry that it doesn't seem like God can or cares. We're angry that what God is offering doesn't seem practical to the hard and harsh circumstances and situations in our lives right now. Our anger is that it it doesn't seem like what God really wants to give to us matters much right now. And we're angry over it. We're angry over the life that we thought we were going to have and it didn't turn out that way. We're angry over all these things in our lives because we look at God with, through the lens of unbelief and it produces in us a fear that shows up as anger. Now, there are many things in our lives that are hard and harsh, and it's oftentimes an anger is an appropriate response to those things. But I'm looking at our vertical relationship, our upward projection of life, and we're angry upward toward God because of things that we've experienced here, and it just doesn't seem like God can or cares. Sometimes the unbelief-fueled fear that we have doesn't necessarily produce anger, but it produces rather inside of us anxiety. We draw back in anxiety. We draw back in anxiety because we're anxious over our actions 
needing to earn God's can and care. So we feel like if we don't get our life in a particular way, then God's not going to do anything for us or He's not going to care enough for us. And so our soul is in this anxious activity of trying to keep the good ledger more than the bad ledger of our lives. And so we're just wasting away, chasing, chasing, chasing after trying to do good, and we get so anxious over it. Or maybe that anxiety is because we do know of our struggle deeply. We know our struggle of our sin, and we're embarrassed, and we're shamed by it. And so our anxiety that brings the stark reality between God's holiness and our sinfulness is really one that is steeped in this feeling that you'll never be worthy. And then rather than looking upward and seeing God's grace pouring down, we just submerge into the I'm not worthy anxiety of the soul. Proverbs 12.25 says, Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, sinks down, down, down. The proverb continues, and, but a good word makes him glad. Some of us may be here this morning needing a good word. It could be as simple as, hey, I'm so glad to see you today. It could also be as profound as look at the nature of God's grace for us. And then sometimes that fear not only produces anger or anxiety, but eventually it could give way to something just as devastating. Apathy. Apathy. You look at the enormous gulf between you and God, realize you can't do anything about it, and you don't really want to feel anger and anxiety because it just reminds you of just how far apart you are from God, so it's just way easier to check out than rather care. Too much work. There are too many other things in life for you to care about, care about right now. I can't care about this, so I'm just going to check out. God's not that big of a deal. My sin's not that big of a deal. And as long as I trick my head and my heart into thinking that, I can just coast. Oftentimes it seems like God doesn't can, does, <laughs> sorry, God doesn't care, or he can't, so I won't care. Instead, I'll just live my best life now, keeping God, thoughts of him, far enough away. Jeremiah 18, 15 says, this is where that will, gives us a sense of where this goes. But my people have forgotten me. They make offerings to false gods, and those false gods made them stumble in their ways. We chase after something else because it's not as weighty as God's awesomeness. And it's a little bit easier to manage and pursue. Apathy eventually leads to idolatry. And that's the sort of fear that we see play out in Exodus. We see that fear fueled by unbelief show up in anger. We already experienced that. And as they, as they were leaving 
Egypt in the most amazing ways and yet angry over their present condition. Or there was anxiety over, what are we going to eat today? And then later, this all sort of metastasizes into apathy when they decide that they would rather function um, like the pagans around them with respect to God. Unbelief-fueled fear produces anger, anxiety, and apathy, and it leads us to a question that's very important. How do we respond to what fuels fear and what fear produces? How do we respond to this? How do we, or how do we respond to, is God too awesome? Well, that's what the second paragraph does for us. It shows us something entirely different. It shows us that God is gracious. Because if you just look at the movements that are happening in the two paragraphs that we read at the very end of Exodus 20, we see the people drawing back, and yet God keeps coming closer. God keeps drawing near. Not to beat them down, but rather He draws near in grace. Again, the last two weeks, we've tried to say and show here in our passage that grace comes before the law, that grace came first, that grace is the context by which God is explaining what it looks like to dwell, delivered before dwelling. They're not, they have no idea what it means to dwell with God. They've been in slavery for 400 years. He delivered them and now we'll walk through what does it look like to live with me. Grace comes first and grace comes yet again. Here we see grace draws near. Two things that draw this out. First, grace bridges the gap. There's an enormous gap, yes, but grace bridges it. Our fear wants to shrink away, but grace draws nearer still. And that grace that bridges the gap, secondly, is a grace that brings transformation. Brings transformation. Let's consider that together. First, grace bridges the gap. Again, The people draw back, but yet Yahweh draws near to the people. Again, let's go back to that verse 20 in Exodus 20. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of Him may be before you, that you may not sin. God has drawn near. Now you might say, I don't want to get tested. Nobody likes tests. He's drawing near to refine his people so that they would worship him and live out their lives as if he is worthy of their worship. He's drawing near to people he has rescued. And then Yahweh speaks with the people, verse 22. You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. I myself, not somebody else, me. I showed up. You cried out. I arrived. Grace draws near. And then we see that grace promises, that Yahweh promises to draw near to his people in verse 24. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. Grace draws near. Now, the impulse of our hearts that are trapped in unbelief and fear doubts that that is the reality, that that's the truth. 
Yet God has displayed again and again and will again and again that His grace draws closer still. God takes the initiative to draw nearer still, even as the people draw back in fear. Fear sees too wide a gap. Grace bridges the gap. Grace bridges the gap. I mean, that's really the fundamental core DNA level storyline of the Bible, isn't it? Grace bridging the gap. It, it's progressively unfolding in the Old Testament. And it's getting new features and, and new aromas and new sounds as it plays out over the pages of history. But yet it is reaching something most incredible the ultimate fulfillment of that gap being bridged. What we even see here is hints and shadows of what we see in full HD vision in the New Testament in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Grace bridges the gap. And that gap is bridged in Christ. The gospel announces the ultimate gap-bridging grace of God in the person and work of Christ. The thing, the one thing that can alleviate all our fears, counter our unbelief, diffuse our anger, calm our anxiety, wake up our apathy, it's found in Christ. Romans Three is an incredible chapter in the Bible. Know it inside out, upside down, backwards. Incredible chapter. It, it's this culmination of this argument that Paul was laying out that basically no one is good. No one. No one's good enough. Yes, God is too awesome. I mean, that's kind of what Paul's doing from Romans 1.18 all the way to Romans 3.21. God's too awesome and you're not. All of you. <laughs> Me too, he says. No one is righteous. No, no, not one. But then verse 18, he says, Of the no one who is righteous, there is no fear of God before their eyes. He's talking about no worship, no reverence, none. There's left to ourselves, we retreat and we reject. But then Romans 3 keeps going. Says it yet again. All, verse 23 and 24, have sinned and fall short as the glory of God. And, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The gap that is true and real. The answer to the question, is God too awesome, is yes. And, but, but then it creates this problem. Now what? What do we do? Well, we do nothing. Christ does everything. He bridges the gap between God's holy awesomeness and our not holy, not awesomeness. And what we just read in Exodus 20 is like a little teaser. Just a little teaser of what God will do in full in the person and work of Christ. Some of y'all in here, you know, like a good teaser trailer. It's not the full two minutes and 20 second trailer. It's that like 
40-second thing and get you all like, ooh, that looks good. It just gives you enough, but not quite everything. And, but unlike most trailers, which are amazingly made, most of the time the movies are bleh in compared to their trailer. Wish it would have put more effort in the movie than the trailer. Anyway, the opposite is true here. The movie, the person work of Christ, oh my goodness. Talk about overwhelmingly awesome and gracious all at once. Grace bridges the gap. And grace also brings transformation. Redeemed lives are transformed for redeemed living. It's what we see here right now. Redeemed lives being transformed for redeemed living. God's purpose in grace is to bring about a new life. Again, the series theme uh, that we have for Exodus is delivered to dwell. So they're rescued in order to be a people of God who know Him and, and are known by Him. And there comes with it some serious transformation. Let's go right back to our verse again, verse 20. So Moses said to the people, do not fear, do not be afraid and paralyzed and shrink back in anger, anxiety, and apathy. God has come to test you that the fear of Him, the worship, the reverence, the joy, the hope would be before you. That, so the outworking of that in your actual life you may not sin, that there would be transformation that occurs in your life. And then the next paragraph, the Exodus chapter 20, verses 22 through 26, are the practical then outworking of really the first four commandments as we read through that. If you remember from two weeks ago, we kind of gave each one of them a word and put those words together, only true, real worship that God is after your heart, that it would grow at only true, real worship. You're not a finished product right now. Philippians 1.6 says that God is still at work in you, and He will bring it to completion one great and glorious day. But that work that is in, happening in you is one that is going to help your heart grow at only true, real worship of Him. And in His instructions in that second paragraph are not to treat God like how the neighboring pagans treat their little g-gods, or how they saw for 400 years how Egypt treated all their deities. They're not to act like that and function like that. They're to treat God differently and function differently. Specifics are mentioned here because they specifically relate to the things that the pagans were doing all around them in the various lands in which they lived. For example, they didn't dress all that well or much in their priestly worship services. Now, it's one degrees, and I've got like three long sleeves and a coat over this for very practical reasons. <laughs> but, they, but they were seeing a world all around them that treated their gods in profane ways. And God says, no, you're not to do that. I'm after your transformation in heart and life. But he gives them a law here. And he helps them see how it shows up in the way they live. But there's a, something that's very important that we must see. We must know. We must feel. We must understand. The law can't produce what only grace brings. 
The law cannot produce in you what only grace can bring. The law cannot produce in you transformation. Only grace, God's grace, brings that about. What the law does is drive you to the God of all grace to receive the grace of God for a new life and a life that learns how to walk in that newness. We see that once again fulfilled in Christ. I was joking with some others earlier this week. I really only have one sermon. It just matters where we're at in the Bible. (laughs) We're going to find it. We're going to find Jesus. (laughs) Not in some sort of like, where's Waldo way? Hopefully in a very clear and biblical way. But this here is also fulfilled in Christ. In Ephesians chapter 4, the outworking of the most glorious gospel presented to us in those first three chapters shows up in the way that we are to live together in this new life. In Ephesians 4, chapter 22 and 24, here we see grace at work. Doing what? To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Grace is at work helping you put that off. Law can't do that. Law just exposes it, drives you to Jesus. Grace helps you put that off. And then do what else? And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. The grace of God is fully provisional for all of our needs. The gulf is too far between God's holiness and our not holiness. God is too awesome, but grace brings all that we need so that we can dwell with God. So the question we asked earlier was, is God too awesome? And the answer is yes, and now what do we do? Or the way we asked it, how do we respond to what fuels fear and fear produces? Well, we answer our fears with the nature of God's grace for us and to us and in us. We remind our heads and our hearts of the depth and magnitude of God's grace for us in light of our ongoing struggle with unbelief and fear and anger and anxiety and apathy in us. If we want to see those things calcify in our hearts, then we stop talking about God's grace. If we want to water our hearts so that they will not harden under anxiety and and anger and apathy and give way to fear and unbelief, then we have to saturate our hearts and our heads with the nature of God's grace, its fullness, its vastness, its freeness, its sufficiency in the midst of our weakness, His power on display through our weakened lives and all that we face. We can't dodge grace thinking we can climb a hill that we have no business touching. No, we have to submerge into grace, not our shame anymore. That is what God has produced and provided and given to us. Because that's who He is. And yet another reason why he's so worthy of our worship. Let us be a people who draw near to the God of all grace. Knowing that he gives to us grace and mercy in our time of need. Let's pray. God, we have asked that you would indeed do this. 
in us, that you would help our hearts not shrink back in fear, not shrink back at the question, are you too awesome? Not give way to anger, not give way to anxiety, not give way to apathy that wants to clog our hearts. We need help. We are very much like that, Father. Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. Help us see how vast and awesome and overwhelming and good and free your grace is. May it cause and spur, inspire our hearts, draw near to you. May you bring transformation in the way that we live. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you would, please stand for our benediction. And yes, you will have to leave. I know the outside is not welcoming you, but we will have to move on into our day. But we get to move on knowing God's grace draws near. Go with this benediction. The grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ be with you all always. Amen.